I tell you what, I've spent the last couple of days reading Jim Wyrick code. Oh my gosh, what a great way to spend time. <laughs> mm. Jealous? <laughs> it's awesome, really. by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash new relic. Does your application need to send emails? Did you know that 20% of all email doesn't even get delivered to the inbox? SendGrid can help you get your message delivered every time. Go to rubyrogues.com slash sendgrid, sign up for free, and tell them thanks. DevMind is a software design and development studio in Chicago with expertise in Ruby, JavaScript, and Clojure. We believe that well-crafted software makes life better, and our team of designers and engineers is dedicated to that pursuit. We love our customers, we love our team, and we spend a lot of time and effort making sure that we fit the right projects with the right people. Get in touch at devmind.com. That's D-E-V-M-Y-N-D.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 151 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello, hello. James Edward Gray. Good morning, everyone. Josh Susser. Good morning from San Francisco. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about our friend and hero, Jim Wyrick. And just to start it off, I kind of want to do a quick introduction. Actually, we all wanted to do this, just to give you a kind of a thumbnail look into who he was. Jim was born November 18th, 1956, and he died February 19th, 2014. And when he died, we, we discussed it, and we all wanted to talk about who he was and, and what he meant to us. So Jim was the chief scientist at what started out as Edge Case, and I know he was there pretty early. I'm not sure if he was a founder or not. And then it got purchased and changed names a couple of times, and it's now Neo Innovation. He gave us a bunch of tools that we use. He built Rake, which is something that is used widely across the community. He also built Builder, which is a tool for building XML. I know he contributed to Ruby Gems. He gave us some other things like RSpec Given, Ruby Koans. And so overall, I mean, he just, he really was kind of the, the heart of the American Ruby community. And, you know, everybody who attended conferences that he was at has stories about him. And, you know, as you got to know him or work with him or sit with him, you just really realized what a tremendous person he was and, and what a difference he, he made to everybody that came in contact with him. So we're just going to talk about his contributions to the community and his contributions to us and things like that. I do want to point out two things, and one is, is that Neo has put together a scholarship in Jim's memory to help people learn code, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And also his family, in lieu of uh, uh, flowers, that's something that we do in the U.S. Usually uh, people give money for flowers and things at a funeral. Um, his family asked for people to donate to the American Heart Association. And so we'll put a link to that in as well, so that uh, if you want to, in his name, make that donation, you can. Did I miss anything, guys? <laughs> you missed a whole lot, but we have an hour to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, uh, that, that, that was a good start. Thanks, Chuck. Jim left us a, a heck of a lot. He left a big imprint on the Ruby community. He was, he was there from the very start mm -hmm. in Ruby, in Western world. He was always, and, yeah, I mean, I, I remember him always being there on Ruby Talk and and the mailing list and having things to things to say and yeah yeah it was, that was an amazing time when i first came into the ruby at, at kind of the height of ruby talks uh value you know where you would regularly ask questions and get answers from people like dave thomas um dhh you know and and of course jim Wyrick, who was just tireless in answering questions helping people it was amazing what are what are some of your first experiences with Jim? 
I think it was um, at a werewolf game. <laughs> You've got to explain this custom since it's kind of fallen out of favor. Yeah, that, that was an early, that was before my time in the Ruby community, yeah. actually. It's a yeah, fun so, game, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't want to do the whole like werewolf story thing because I, I, that's like a big story, but like, you know, werewolf. It's a game that people play to conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a salon party game. And I had run into Jim like a little bit at the conference and then we ended up in a werewolf game together and wow, he's brutal. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that, that man was good at everything. <laughs> exactly. So that's how I met him. Who else? I think I told my story in a previous episode. It was the one that we we found out that morning that he had passed away and, you know, where I I attended Mountain West Ruby Conference and I was very new and I asked him questions about uh, mocking and stubbing and he just answered my questions. I had no idea who he was at the time and then found out later that he was the guy that David Brady was talking about when he said that he would pay money to hear Jim Wyrick talk about oatmeal. So... <laughs> You know, but there are a ton of experiences that I've had since then where, you know, I just sit down and ask him what he's working on and we'd sit there for two hours and skip sessions at a conference while he explained to me what he was doing and why, why he cared. And it, it, he, he was, he was such a terrific mentor to anybody who would listen to him. Yeah. And, men, and many who didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My earliest interactions with him were definitely trading emails on Ruby talk. Uh, but then, like, just conferences, as I began to go to the conferences, he was such a fixture, you know, it's like, uh, the first time I would run into him in the hall of the conference, that's how I knew I was at a Ruby event, you know, or it's mm-hmm. just, I am very and sad. And you heard his, his laugh first, I mean, that's yes. what Yes, yeah, you could hear it forever, right? It was this big Santa Claus laugh. What was your first interaction, Avdi? I don't know. I, you know, we probably, there were probably some emails on Ruby talk or something like that. Um, one early recollection I have is that kind of out of the blue, cause I'd never really interacted directly with him. I emailed him asking for any thoughts that he had on exceptions when I was getting ready, getting, um, my exceptional Ruby talk together. And, you know, everybody talks about how generous he was with his time. And it's, it's so true. I mean, he, he got my email and he sent back this long email with all kinds of really interesting thoughts about exceptions. And he taught me a lot in that email. And there's stuff that, that I definitely, you know, put in as a result, put into the exceptional Ruby talk and book, uh, because of that. And, uh, oh, I was recently reminded too, that, uh, that he was the one to introduce me to Sandy Metz. So I have, I have him to thank for that as well. Oh, awesome. Well, while we're doing this, are, are there any other stories that really illustrate what Jim was about to you that you want to tell? So yeah, Jim had, that was one of Jim's things, like his shtick was that he had a story for everything. And it was great. They were great stories. Like I can remember tons of them. He used to tell the story about how he created Rake all the time. And it's a great story. Uh, it, the I know last week on the show, we were talking about million and one failures and I used Twitter as an example then because it was what popped into my head. And then afterwards, after we did the show, I thought, oh, that was so dumb. Jim has the best million and one story and I can remember that one too. So, I mean, he had these like stories for everything. It was kind of a part of his thing. It was neat. I don't know if I know the rake story. Do you want to share it real quick? Sure. So they were just... um, Fiddling around, him and a colleague, I'm sorry, I don't remember who it was, but they were fiddling around with make and and trying to get the syntax right, uh, as I'm sure anybody who's spent 10 minutes with make has had that problem. And Jim made some comment or his colleague did about, wouldn't it be great if this was, you know, in Ruby syntax and it wasn't so complicated or whatever. And, and they were both like, yeah, you know, what would that look like? And, whatever. And so they did whatever they needed to do. And they went back to their separate workstations. And Jim, just being the fiddly kind of person that he was, uh, sat down and was like, well, you'd have this task thing, and it would take a block. And, you know, he fiddled with it for a few seconds. And then he went back to the person he was working with and was like, well, what if it looked like this? <laughs> you know, and this is how you define a task. And they're like, yeah, that would be so much better. But you know, then you would have, you know, the dependencies. It would be a lot of work to recreate, make in, in Ruby, you know, and do all these things. And 
And Jim was like, yeah, yeah, that, that'd be a lot of work and it would be hard, you know, figuring out all the tasks you need to run and stuff. And so they did whatever they needed to do, went back to their own workstations. And again, Jim being Jim said that he's like, all right, well, how would you do it? And Nate just starts fiddling and, and they did that that day and, and wrote the core of what would eventually become break, you know, it's great. Thinking in code is kind of how I think about it. Well, that is so, Jim. I mean, some of the things that we have from him are his, well, what ifs. I mean, like, our spec given. You know, it was, uh, well, I'm just going to experiment with this and see if I can make our spec, you know, have the given when then that Cucumber has. Or uh, Ruby Koans, you know, what if we had a, a learning a system or a set of exercises, you know, written with tests, and then we wind up with this, you know, this cool way of learning Ruby. And it, it seems like a lot of the things that he did were really that way, where it was an experiment that just turned into something really useful. Yes, that was definitely his style. Yeah, he, he was a prolific contributor. Mm-hmm. He was just always working or playing on something. I, I, I mean, what's the, what's the list of all the stuff? I mean, he has he, all the library. I would venture to say that anyone who does any Ruby programming is always using Jim's code, you know, like every day. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 there's rake, there's builder, there's, you know, you know what, what else? Avdi, you had a whole, Avdi and Jim, you were like rattling these things off before. I mean, rake is, rake is the biggest one. Builder definitely gets used in some things. Ruby gems, he contributed to. He did, definitely, he did some of the, a lot of the early work in Ruby gems, as far as I know. So that's, that's a big one. I want to say that even if not as many people use Flexmock anymore, I want to say that the RSpec mocks were actually originally based on Flexmock. I think a lot of the mocking libraries took their inspiration from Flexmock, and even in recent years, after Jim was playing with RSpec Gibbon, he realized that traditional mocking didn't really fit that model well, and he was all, well, what we need is spies. And he went back and added spies to Flexmock so that he could play with them in that environment, and then all the other mocking frameworks again copied Flexmock and introduced spies. Mm-hmm. I think he also innovated with um, any instance in Flexmock. Yeah, any yeah, instance, uh, okay. maybe I don't know. Yeah, yeah, being able to—I I was just looking through my emails uh, a few minutes ago and found an email from him in 2007 to the Rails Studio email list talking about using Flexmock for any instance. Gotcha. So, yeah. So, so yeah, he was always innovating on that kind of stuff and always pushing the envelope. And I think you were right. It was like a lot of it was just. You know, his way of thinking through problems and exploring ideas. Did we mention Blank Slate already? No, we haven't, but uh, we should definitely do that. You want to say what it is? Well, so um, I think it was in Builder that he ran across the, the need for a stripped-down object-based class that had you know practically no methods on it. And we know that now as basic object, but back in the Ruby 1.8 and before days, there was no such thing. You know, you just had, had object and it already had a whole bunch of methods on it. And, uh, so he figured out the code to strip off all of the, all the unnecessary methods from something and, and create something called blank, a blank slate object. And, uh, that later found its way into Ruby in the form of basic object. That code, um, I just put links in the show notes to it. This is definitely an episode, by the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, where you're going to have to click around on some of the links we show you and, and look because this is a, it's an amazing legacy and you should look through some of this stuff. The code's really expressive and you can learn a lot. But the original blank slate is, is really neat. It's like Avdi said, he strips out all these methods, but then Ruby is so dynamic that depending on the load order of the files, he may have stripped out methods, but then if you load something like Rails, it's going to throw a whole boatload of them back in, you know, in the, in the base stuff and, and bulk up your blank slate again. So Jim had to define all these hooks and watch as methods were added or modules were included and stuff and go find those methods and knock them back out of blank slate. Uh, and it was really neat. He, he has this code to do it. It's pretty readable. You can, you can figure it out. I've put a link that takes you right to the class. And then if you look, there's another file in Builder uh, that in more current versions basically says if basic object exists, blank slate equals basic object. And that's that Jim's code had such an impact that that feature was adopted into Ruby itself and became blank basic object. So nowadays, that's how we do it. 
I think some of the ideas from his talks, too, inspired different things. I mean, and between, like, the episode that we did on this show, where he talked about uh, objects in rails, and then, you know, Avdi's book, I think both of those really influenced the way that people think about rails. And I'm also reasonably sure that he contributed quite a bit to rails as well. Well, Builder is Rails' default mechanism for rendering HTML, or, sorry, XML. So that's been included in Rails as long as I can remember, I think, since the beginning. So he definitely contributed that as far as nothing else. This is kind of sad, uh, but he did have this quest sort of about, he was never very happy with the structure of how Rails did things, I think, you know, and and wanted to bring more objects to it and contributed with that. And there are multiple repos on GitHub where he's trying to figure out different approaches to structuring Rails apps. And he never really got anything that stuck there. Uh, he did, but he, he kept having ideas on that. He had another uh, repo uh, very late in his life uh, that just says coming soon. And it's another one of those ideas mm. of, of trying to structure rails. I think that was the nut he never really cracked, you know? You know, before we move away from Builder, um, I, I think it's worth noting that I think that Builder really had an influence just in its style, because I think it was one of the first, if not the first, libraries to explore just the idea of a DSL for building things in Ruby. Uh, you know, the idea that you could translate the language of the thing that you were building, in this case, XML tags, uh, into Ruby methods by using method missing or, or something like that, which would, you know, the method would correspond to the tag being generated. So you could say, you know, body do, and then inside that block, you could say h1 do or p do, you know, to, to put in h1, h1 tags or p tags. And I don't, I don't know if I recall anything before then that had that style to it. And, uh, there have been dozens and dozens of libraries since then that, uh, use that approach. I think that that was probably new in the Ruby world. I'd seen things like that before in Smalltalk and other languages. He actually based it off of, I can't remember where he saw it in particular, but he did base it off of builders or, or concept in another language that he really liked. So he ported the library to Ruby, basically, to bring that teacher to us. <clears throat> Right, but but he he was still innovating around that. I, I remember um, when like Builder was going back and forth between the implicit instance eval and not. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And to explain that for our listeners, in a code block, you know, in the and you're doing so, you can either pass in an argument to the block and send all your messages to that. So, you know, if you're in Builder, you can do, you know, pass in an, an XML and do XML dot whatever. Or you can do an instance eval on the block and that evaluates the code in the block in the context of the object that you pass in. So all the message sends can be implicit. So instead of doing XML dot foo, you just say foo. And Jim went back and forth on that and sort of ran into the issues on both sides of that fence. And I like that he settled on the explicit messaging rather than the implicit instance eval. Right. Yeah, the, the thing is that usually when you're generating like XML, you're pulling the content from somewhere else. And so you have this object or this context that you're in, and you need to get to those methods because they're the data. So then when he would use instance eval, he would change self out from underneath you. And you couldn't get to your data easily anymore. <laughs> so right. he decided right. to keep that explicit, to keep the separation uh, obvious. There's another cool trick in Builder uh, that I just don't see very much. And uh, I noticed it when I was going back through the code recently. He had to handle encodings as Ruby grew up. Because, you know, and Ruby 1.8 and lower encodings were a very, you know, small, simple thing. And then in 1.9, we got full, you know, multilingualization. So he had to handle that when he was escaping uh, content. And um, there's this spot in Builder where he just has a conditional while he's defining the class. So uh, mm. if he if encoding exists, if, if multilingualization is there, then he defines uh, escape method that's encoding aware. And if it doesn't exist, then he falls back on this very simple approach that 
that uh, works with Ruby's uh, earlier system. Uh, and I don't see that a lot, but then, so when the class is defined, you only have the one method, uh, but it's the right one for that execution. It's a neat trick. I'll put a link in the show notes. One of the things that strikes me when I'm reading his code is it's the code of somebody who has absorbed a whole lot of object-oriented principles in a very organic way. So you see a lot of great patterns that are used, but they're used in a really, like, no-fuss way. There's there's not a lot of boilerplate around them. Um, there's not a lot of fanfare. I was just looking at a, a piece of code in Rake that checks to see the, it checks for the, the, um, the modification time of a file. And it's possible that a non-existent file might be passed into the method. And a lot of, a lot of code might have returned, you know, either the modification time if the file exists, existed or nil if the file didn't exist. Um, but what Jim has is he has the, the method in the case where the file doesn't exist, he has it returning a special case early object and early is basically a singleton of a little tiny special class that he wrote, which is just designed to basically sort as older than any other possible timestamp. And so it'll always appear to be out of date. And as a result, you can use the, you you can use the return value of that method without worrying about the possibility of it returning a nil. Yeah, that's a a nice trick. And, and yeah, I looked at the code when you, when you showed that to me uh, this morning and it, I think that's a great example of how doing that kind of quote trick in your code isn't very much code at all. And I, th- I think a lot of people who don't have like a whole quiver full of those arrows, they have to think a lot about that stuff. Jim just shows us like how easy it is all the, like he knew all that stuff and he would just like whip it out as he was, you know, cranking out code mm-hmm. and just made it all look easy. I mean, that, that was the thing about Jim that always impressed me the most, was that no matter what he was doing, he made it look easy. <laughs> There's another good uh, special case example in uh, our spec given, and it's one of the really neat ones. It's one of my favorite programming tricks that I figured out by reading Jim's code. And um, the case is such that so in our spec given, you write things like given, then, when, or given, when, then, sorry. Uh, you know, uh, blocks, you know, given this, then this, when that, you know, et cetera. And, um, one of the interesting problems he ran into is say you have some code that raises an exception. Well, obviously the exception has to be caught because he doesn't want it to crash like the test framework or anything. And, and it also has to be caught because you need to be able to say something after the fact, like, then it should have raised an exception or it should have failed, uh, right? So you can't let it fail or you'd never get to the it should have failed part. But then if they didn't do that, like, say the exception really did was a mistake and they were had a normal test, then you want the exception to actually happen and fire. And if you raise the exception then, if you, like, capture the original and then you raise it later all the line numbers and everything, the context of the exception will be wrong, right? And so there's this bit of code in uh, our spec given that's really neat. He has a failure object, and it can run code in a context and catch any exception that comes with it. And it returns it wrapped in this failure object, uh, the exception itself. And then you can check for that, like the matchers that, uh, check for have failed. They say, you know, is it an RSpec given failure, basically. But the cool thing is this exception object is wired up uh, kind of like blank slate where everything in it just re-raises the original exception. Uh, so if you try to do anything with it, if you thought it was a number and then you try to add it to something, that's going to cause the plus method and that wasn't counted on so that it, it's going to raise the original exception. And because it saved it, the context is still correct and points back to the right line numbers of your code and stuff. And he's basically moving exceptions around in the system, but then triggering them when it makes sense to do so. And it's a neat bit of code. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our spec given as, as a whole is a pretty neat piece of code. I've been using it. I don't know if anybody else uses it, but I've been using it in some of my projects as the main spec tool. Uh, and uh, I've really liked it. And it does some r- amazingly cool stuff. I mean, the, the way it breaks down failures, 
like it's hard to describe you kind of have to see it but the way it breaks down failures taking the the individual objects apart to see you know what the values were you know the actual values were versus the expected values is pretty neat it is a neat framework i didn't really appreciate it until i went to um scottish ruby Conf, and we've talked a little about how jim has uh, these talks, uh, I'll go ahead and throw a link to this one, but he did a whole talk on our spec given. And, uh, that was where I first saw the, the exception passing trick. And then I had to look into the code to see how it was done. And, but he also talks about several other things in that talk, including, um, he has kind of a mini rant on our specs include. Yeah. Includes matcher where you can say expect to include or yeah, mm-hmm. expect to include. That's that, always bugged me a little bit too. Oh man, that matcher is awesome. And he just tore it apart. He showed like, I think he showed 11 different ways to make it pass. They were like something else. He's like, I don't know what this specified. It seems to accept everything. Oh wow. <laughs> it was great. It was super great. Oh jeez. Okay. So Jim had a, a lot of style and he had a lot of influence on coding style in the Ruby world. So I th- I think the, the there's like one or two things that like we even use his name talking about it. So there's the Wyrick style of block delimiters, yes, which is uh it, you know very the, like the Rails style, the Rails core style of doing block delimiters is if it's a multi line block, you use do and end, and if it's a single line, uh, you know if the, the whole block fits on one line, you just put it in curly braces. And if Jim were here, he'd tell you that was wrong. Yeah, and what would well, he, he say? Would tell you it's not the style that he uses. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, very true. He'd say that's not a very interesting style. <laughs> the, re- the reason that one's not interesting is it gives you information you already have. You yeah. can see at an immediate glance if the block takes up one line or if it takes up many. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talk right. a lot about code right. right. let, Go ahead. Let, let's get to the punchline of his style, oh, yeah. which is that you know J- Jim said. Use do end if you're using the block without without caring about the return value. You're just doing doing side effects. If you are using the return value, use curly braces because then putting a a dot and then the next message, you know, chaining that on the end of the curly brace is much more readable than chaining it off the end. Was his uh, signal? And you were saying, Afti? Well, I was I was just saying that you know we to- we've talked a, f- a little bit about code malleability on the on the show and. Uh, you know, to me, this is it, it. Well, it's there are a lot of good things about this style, but uh, one of them is the issue of, of malleability, where you know you don't want changes to force sort of noise cha- other noise changes. So you know, the way I look at it, if you're changing your curly braces to do end just because the block got bigger, right? Uh, uh, if you look at the diff. The, the part of the diff that's showing the change from curly braces to do end, that's just noise. It's telling you, you know, it's, it's distracting from the important thing, which is that the block got bigger. And it's very common for blocks to get bigger and smaller to go from one line to, to, to multi-line. It is much, much less common for a block to go from a functional block to a side effect block or vice versa. Right, because the name of the iterator typically implies whether or not you care about the return value. Right. If it's an each, if it's an each, you're going to care only about the side effects. If it's a map, you're going to care only about, typically, you're going to care only about the return value. Yeah, I agree. I think that was, that's why that style rang so true. After you did an episode recently on uh, one of other, Jim's other style tricks that I really love. You want to tell us about that one? Sure, yeah. And this is, uh, one of the things he sent me in that email, uh, years ago when I asked him about his, his insight into exceptions. And what he showed me was that a convention for how he uses the, uh, the fail and raise keywords in Ruby. Um, a lot of people now might not even realize that there are two ways to raise an exception in Ruby that you can use either raise or fail. They're both methods on kernel. They both do the exact same thing. They're basically just aliases for the same thing. And I think style these days has gone towards uh, just using raise for everything. But what Jim showed me was that he uses the two different methods for two different things. So most of the time he uses fail. If he wants to indicate that there was a failure of any kind, he uses fail to signal the exception. But then in the, the rarer case where he wants to, where he rescues an exception and then decides to re-raise it, that's where he uses raise. 
So he uses raise uh, strictly to signal a exception that's being re-raised after being rescued. And uh, I really like that that style. It uh, it's again, it's a way of using Ruby's m- multiple ways of doing things in a way that gives a a signal to the reader. It's a cue to the reader that that says, "Hey, pay attention here." Yeah, that that's actually I think a really subtle thing that is worth reiter- worth focusing on a little is that Ruby gives you a lot of different options for how to do things, and you can. Just settle on one thing, like say, okay, right. I'm all, I'm always going to use collect instead of map, right? You, you, yeah, you could be Josh Sester and just say, I'm always using collect instead <laughs> of map. Uh, and, and, and it's worth worth pointing out that that yeah. back in the old days, some people settled on only using one kind of block, you know, only using mm-hmm. curly braces, for instance. Right, right. But Jim's approach was okay. The language gives us a couple different ways of doing the same thing. And that's an, that's more information that I can put in my code. And then when I or someone else is reading my code, they now have extra signals to tell them what's going on and what the programmer's intent was. It also tells you another very important thing about the way Jim programmed is that he cared about how the code came out, like how it looked and how easy it was to understand and, and share and stuff like that. That was always in his mind. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that that, was because Jim actually cared about the people who would be reading his code. For sure. It's, it's like, you know, he, 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 he had a lot of compassion. Any other style stuff? We got blocks. We got fail versus raise. I'm kind of curious. I mean, these are all things that he actually talked about that he liked to do. But I'm wondering, I mean, I haven't read a lot of his code. I know you guys have read more of it than I do, than I have. But are there things in his code that you've noticed that are more stylistic than, say, the patterns that you mentioned before? Oh, he, yeah, a lot of his code um, looks uh, much more like Perl than what most Rubyists are used to, right? That's I mean, interesting. You know, Why do you say that? Because he uses, yeah. like... Well, d- d- uh, so, Avdi, you were pointing out an example in Flexmock, I think, where using the OR form of OR... Yeah, um, actually, I was just, just going to bring that up. And yeah. It's, it's, a, it's basically a cascade of, of try this, then try this, then try this, and a lot of people might use an if-else uh, with a bunch of clauses... Uh, but it actually looks quite nice the way he, he made it. And it's basically, I mean, I, I can practically read it to you. It's, uh, look up task name and scopes or enhance with matching rule t- given task name or synthesize file task given task name or fail, don't know how to build task. And so there's an example of, of fail as well. And it, it reads really nicely at the end of this, this cascade of try this, then try this, then try this. This is, uh, this is in the rake source code, by the way. It's so natural. It literally reads like, like it is, do this. Or if you couldn't do that, do this. Mm-hmm. Or if you couldn't do that, do this. And it's it's but, very much a pearlism as well. Yeah. Right. If you rewrite it, it, you know, it's a fun exercise. Rewrite it with ifs. It's a lot uglier. <laughs> right. So Yeah. So, so Jim wasn't afraid to experiment in his code styles and try and find something that was more expressive. I don't always agree with the, with his choices, but I love that. Well, I agree with most of his choices, I will say. I don't agree with all of them. But I do love that he's always, it always looks like he's trying to push things in that direction of readability and understandability. You know, he, he takes the, he took the time for that. Mm-hmm. One for thing sure. that's related to that, and this is something that I saw a lot in his talks. I'm, I'm changing the subject, sorry. But, uh, one thing I noticed in his talks was the, the things that people tended to want to throw out or avoid for whatever reason, sometimes cultural, and I'll give an example here in a second, or the things that he liked to come back kind of challenge you on. So the last talk I heard him give was at uh, RubyConf last year, and he talked about UML, <laughs> which is which is a very enterprise uh, waterfall thing in a lot of people's minds. And so, you know, he came back in and he said, look, this is a very powerful way of representing the entities and interactions in your code. And, uh, I mean, he gave, you know, a full on, I don't remember if it was an hour long talk, but, you know, he made a lot of terrific points and, you know, kind of reset the way people thought about something that to their mind is very enterprisey. And so, you know, I, I just, I love that. I love the way that he kind of pushed things that way as well in his talks and his, uh, the ways that he would, uh, interact with you while explaining the way that he approaches his code. Yeah, Jim really, I think in his attitude, I think taught me a lot about not being, not being a reactionary, I guess, you know, being very pragmatic and, and open-minded. Yeah. I, I could see that. I mean, you know, Jim, Jim struck me as the kind of person who always looked for 
the best qualities in people. And it's great because when you look for those qualities, you usually find them. Mm -hmm. And Jim was great at that. <laughs> I, I always walked away from a conversation with Jim feeling like I was a better person. That, you know, yeah, he, he, he could bring that out. But, and he, he was really thoughtful, too. So. Yeah. And that, that really makes me think. I mean, it makes me want to be that kind of person. Yeah. Well, well, we all can. <laughs> so one other thing that, that comes to mind, you know, talking about this challenge, the way some people think about things. I remember, and this was a few years ago, he spoke at one of the conferences I was at, and he gave a talk on being a polite programmer. And basically it was, you know, here's the way that you should be patching things that don't belong to you. Oh, oh this was the etiquette talk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, this uh, is great. You know, there were, there were so many people out there that were writing gems and things, and some of them were doing the things that he talked about, and some of them were literally opening a class and monkey patching it because Ruby allows you to open the class and do that. And so he he walked through all of the etiquette of doing that and why why you want to do things in a particular way so that people can go back through and figure out where things came from and why they're doing the things that they are. And, uh, you know, it was, again, it was just kind of a, he he never came across as I you know I'm challenging the status quo, but it really was uh, you really ought to think about it before you do these kinds of things. And I see a lot of these things out there. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I guess I'm bringing up some of my favorite talks, but you know, it just it it was it was really the way it was, and so it was a mentorship. And at the same time, you know, it was you know you need to change your the way you think about some of this stuff. Okay, so we we've we've mentioned this many times. Jim is really well known for all of the ridiculously great conference talks that he did and teaching. I mean, he did a lot of, uh, uh, you know, like he worked with rail studio for, for a while, I think, uh, you know, with the pragmatic studio stuff, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, educating there. And he, he just like was always an educator. He loved teaching people stuff because he loved learning new stuff. So he left, like his Confreaks page is ridiculous how many talks he gave. Yeah, and I just counted. I think it's 34. There's some on there that are tributes, but yeah, it's like, it's a big list of talks, like 30 talks. And that's not all of them because uh, the one I linked to earlier about the RSpec given is not on Confreaks. So mm -hmm. yeah, there's a ton of talks. And they are all just staggeringly good talks. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen them all yet. All of the ones I've seen are amazing. He was a great speaker and, you know, he was really smart. He was great, great educator. He had a good rapport with uh, the audience. Uh, he was always having fun on stage and wanted to make sure that you were having fun too. You know, I always looked up to him as a great role model for a presenter and, you know, wish that I could someday be as good at, as he is at the lectern. <laughs> yeah. One of my Check favorite what? stories there with Jim and speaking is actually the story that the Fusion guys told on their blog in their Jim Wyrick tribute where they came and they were getting ready to give a talk and they showed him their slides and he he actually helped them rewrite the talk and, you know, made it into a success. I'll put a link in the show notes. But, uh, you know, that's just another example. He was very good at speaking and, again, very you know, willing to help people out to make their talks and their things a success too. But he understood it very well and, and did such a terrific job. So he gave a talk uh, a while back with the, the modest title, The Grand Unified Theory of Software Development. <laughs> <laughs> and if anybody else had given a talk with that name, I don't think it would have lived, lived up to the title. But this one, honest to gosh, lives up to the title. Uh, it's where he introduced me to the the concept of connaissance, which is sort of the generalized concept of things being connected to each other and goes over all the different types of connaissance. And basically, like, it's it, it lives up to the title because it's a great framework for just sort of understanding all the different choices that we make in software and all the different patterns that we use. They all kind of pretty much all boil down to controlling the amounts of connaissance and the type of connaissance that are in our programs. And just mind-blowing talk. I saw that talk and it is very good. He had another talk on the solid principles uh, that was similar. And it seemed like Kinesis was, he was trying to take it a step back, right? And figure out like what were the building blocks that these things came from is what I felt like. Oh. It was really good. They're both great talks. Uh, yeah. We'll definitely put some links in there. It's funny what you say about the grand unified theory. When I ran Red Dirt, he came 
and we made him the opening keynote speaker and we started early. I think he went at like, it was 8.30 maybe in the morning and he just launches right into physics at 8.30 a.m. <laughs> you know, it's totally Jim Wyrick. It was great. Very nice. Yeah, I, I love that he, he, like his talks, he, he always included a lot of science. Well, not always, but very often he included a lot of science in them. And it was clear that he was like very well read on a on a wide range of topics. Uh, so a lot of good talks, a lot of good conferences. He was on Ruby Rogues twice. He was like one of our few repeat guests, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Episodes twenty and sixty. And I love how like the first one was object oriented programming in Rails, and the next was Solid. You know the Solid principles. So he he was a real master of object design. Jim had a talk that I love, and it fits in with uh, Chuck talking about how he always challenges your ideas. I'm a super big debug with puts and PE. I, I, I pretty much never launch debugger. And, um, you know, I, I've just always been that way. And Jim wrote a talk for people just like me one time. He's like, you know, if you always debug with puts, you don't know what a debugger is, basically. And and he took this example, which is the Gilded Rose Kata. And so Jim also introduced me to the Gilded Rose Kata through this talk, uh, which is a really neat programming exercise that if you've never tried, you need to. It's uh it's very mind expanding and, and shows you what you can do with properly structured code. And he has examples of that, repos of that, and I do as well, that you could look at uh, after you try your own solution. But in this example, he takes the original Gilded Rose code, translated into Ruby, he translated it to Ruby, and he shows you how hard it is to use, like, puts to figure out what's going on in there. It's very hard. Uh, and then he fires up a debugger, and you can very easily tell what's going on there in the debugger. So if you have that same bias I do, you should really go watch this talk because it's very eye-opening. Okay, so uh, we've talked about a lot of his talks and videos. What about the... Okay, that stuff's all fun. What about the really fun stuff? What about the games? Oh, I thought you were going to bring up quadcopters. (laughs) Well, that too. I I sat and talked to him for like two hours about quadcopters at RubyConf. Yeah. And he's what, showing what, me videos and the whole night. It was really fun. Just fun stuff. The quadcopters. What, what about the, like, the, the katas and the koans? Oh, yeah. The, yeah. The, yeah. I, I believe, I'm not sure I'd have to look. I think he might have originally taken the idea for, from, uh, Ruby Cohen's for, from Meta Cohen's, which was a, a Ruby quiz early on that Ara T. Howard ran, I believe. But anyways, uh, Jim made, Ruby Cohen's and when you pull it down, it's a way to learn Ruby and it's, it's basically a, a, a Ruby program that you pull down and try to run and just right off the bat it dies, but it gives you a really good message and tells you why it died and what you should go fix. And you go in there and fix that and then you run it again. And what you realize is it's basically a test suite. And all of these tests are, are failing, uh, for various reasons. And he's, he's hacked it around to, to give you these good error messages and stuff. And then, uh, you go through and, you know, fix these tests. And as you go, you're learning to understand what Ruby does. You're, you're correcting these things and making them answer correctly. And it's teaching you bits of Ruby and it has different modules so you can learn different things. I contributed to that as well. I, I put in some regular expression stuff because it, it kind of skipped over those and I thought that would be fun. Uh, but it's a neat way to learn Ruby, kind of an interactive teach yourself a little bit of Ruby bit. And they just, uh, I think it was Edgecase just released that for free. It was really great. Yeah, I love that approach. It really made me think when I ran across that because it, it occurred to me that a lot of us uh, have, you know, some of our first programming experiences not in a you know proper uh you know first principles way but just in like encountering a program that's broken and we decide to try and fix it and and it's kind of a neat way of of thinking about learning is you know from the perspective of fixing something little little by little rather than from the perspective of let's build up from first principles some of his talks just have incredibly fun bits in them too i don't remember 
which talk this particular bit is, but I mentioned earlier his one in a million failure story, and I'll, I'll give you just the basics. But Jim worked in, boy, I think about every industry over the course of his career. And at one point, he wrote code that ran on uh, jet engines, like rocket engines. And they had to do uh, something with parallel shared state, you know, typical scenario. And the, the synchronizing uh, in order to do this was killing them uh, with the speed, you know, that it would take to require the lock and stuff. So uh, Jim sat down and he worked out a way that uh, he could do it with a lockless data structure. And he said, you know, the downside is it's going to fail. And I can't remember what the exact number of times it was, but it was something like one in a million. It, it'll be right this often, but there's this, you know, horrible edge case. It'll kick in every so often. It'll be wrong. And they decided that was within the error bars. That was, that was good enough. And it reduced tons of overhead. And so they implemented this and then they would leave these, these engines testing, you know, in these, I guess, you know, tunnels uh, where they would test things. And, it turned out that after they switched over to this new code, like every two and a half days or something, the engine would randomly die. <laughs> and um, typical Jim, you know, they, here they have this horrible show-stopping bug. And typical Jim, he sits down and does the math. So, okay, it's doing this many revolutions. It's, that means it's got to be going through this code every so often. If we take so often and multiply it by, you know, two and a half days and figure it all out, he's all... I was right. The failure rater is exactly what I said it would be. <laughs> and that was his lockless structure when it would fail. He was way more excited about that than they had some engine that would just die, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many thousands of dollars worth of engines did they destroy? <laughs> That's awesome. Jim was literally a rocket scientist. Nice. Yeah. He's done it all. I, he told me once how many industries he worked in. I don't even remember, but it was a lot. It was impressive. He showed me some stuff that he was working on. This was a couple of years ago for Neo or Edgecase or whatever they were at the time. And basically what it was was uh, it was an Android-based thermostat, and you could control it. They were working on a web interface for it. It was, I mean, you know, just stuff out there that you don't really think about, you know, rocket OSs and thermostats in your house. It was just anything that he could play with, <laughs> the guy was into. He loved to fiddle, for sure. But Chuck talked about the quadcopters. I threw a link to a recent talk he gave that uh, was actually about friendly flying robots with Ruby. And I think he actually, it may have been when we were in... England, uh, I mentioned that I saw him at Scottish Ruby Conf, and, and like me, he toured around through England a bit while he was there. And I think he ended up going to a Node.js group, and they were playing with quadcopters there. And he played with that and had fun. And then typical Jim, he wanted to figure out how to do it in Ruby, his favorite toy. You know? So he did a lot in there. Uh, I haven't seen this talk, but I assume it's about that. Okay, so, so there's one little bit of Jim's legacy that I think is one of my less favorite parts of, of the Ruby world, and that's the way that people name their configuration files. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so, so, you know, Rake was the Ruby make, right? And make was, uh, was created, you know, it used the, the make file, was what they called it, and I was, and like this is back in the day when file names on on systems were really short. Like you got eight characters and then a three character extension. Uh, for all you children out there, yes, we had you know we couldn't have thousand character long file names, uh, but the, <laughs> and we had to walk to school uphill both ways in the snow. <laughs> yeah. What's funny is even after operating started to get beyond that, you still ran into problems with it because like. In Windows, you know, even when it got past that, if you went down to the DOS layer or something, it just truncated everything to eight dot three. Yeah, you got yeah, you got all the uh, twiddles in your file name. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that was, that was terrible. So you know, Jim, not criticizing the decision at all. I think it was a good decision. He he you know, he said, "Oh, we're going to call the file the configuration file for rake rake file." And there was a lot of history coming from make file for that. So you know, that was fine, but. Then every other project that's come along since then that's looking for a configuration file name just, you know, slaps file on the end of a word. You know, so you have proc files and gem files and vagrant you know, file. 
Yeah, all if, the, all if you use librarian chef, it's the chef file. Yeah, cap, fi- <laughs> cap files and, you know, file files and dir files and whatever. Junk files. So, yeah, so I, I just, you know, I think it, you know, you know Jim gets a special exception. Yeah, <laughs> he's exempt from criticism on this because he was following in the footsteps of make, but everybody else, you're wrong. <laughs> Josh, why don't everybody you tell us why? Everybody else, you have no excuses. <laughs> and, why, and, why, and, why don't you tell us why we're wrong? Because, well, one, it makes it harder for your tools to know that the file that you're working with is written in Ruby. So your syntax highlighting doesn't work, your your searches and things like that aren't can't be smart. So that's the problem. <laughs> and uh, I mean that's actually my biggest problem with it. So that, the fact that, that it doesn't have a dot rb on the end is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, there's no dot rb on the end. See, my biggest problem with it isn't that. It's that it's all in the root directory of the project. Yep, and too. so and so, you know, all of my other configs for my database and whatever, say in Rails, it all goes in config or in a Sinatra. I still put all my config stuff in config. And then I've got like blah file, blah file, blah file, blah file, and blah file because I'm using guard and foreman and, guard, and, guard is array guard and, you know, and so I've, I've got like six of them in there and it's, it's all clutter because I don't need to know about them unless I'm specifically dealing with those tools. And so I'd rather hide them in config. Right, but it shows up on the first page of GitHub. That's what you need. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's important. See, Josh, I I always thought your your main objection was that it, the naming was redundant. Uh, oh, the file file. Well, like, it is, but uh, you know, you know the, the the extra redundant information isn't as big a problem for me as the missing information that the file is written in Ruby. Gotcha. That's like uh, when you have a name object and you put a name method on it, you know, so you're like name dot name, you know. It's like, oh, I hate that. <laughs> the, 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 the worst is, is content. Content, yeah. <laughs> What's the content of my content? Yeah, exactly. Well, then if it's bad, you make it malcontent. <laughs> That's right. Nice. <laughs> okay. One thing that Jim always did for me, too, is he always introduced me to new people. And that was something that I really appreciated. I just wanted to bring that up. I know Avdi talked about him introducing he and Sandy Metz, and he did that with a whole bunch of people for me. And I'm not going to go down the list, but they're people that whose opinion I still appreciate today. So, you know, it was, man, the guy was just awesome. <laughs> that, yeah. is, that is such a great people pattern. Um, yes, yes. You know, it just when you're at a conference or something and you realize that person A has something in common with, with person B and you, you know, you introduce the two, you know, it's, it's, it's a great feeling for you and it's, it's usually great for them. It's just, it's a great habit to be in. Jim was, um, Gladwell has this term, Malcolm Gladwell, about the different kinds of people. And one of the people is a connector. And they're like the people that know everybody <laughs> and, and that yeah, their job is literally to put people in touch with other people and, and help people find other people. And I, I would say Jim definitely fills that role. Like, it, you know, he just, I think it was because he was so just a kind personality and that everybody eventually got to know him. And then it's like you said, he would, find this other person and they would be like, well, I'm working on this. And he'd be like, oh, I know somebody you got to talk to. And he would take you to them. You mm-hmm. know, it was great. Yeah. You know, this isn't much of an anecdote, but I just, I want to share it just because it's part of my memory of him. Just very briefly, he, we, my, my wife and I sat with him on the pirate boat um, at ancient city Ruby. And he, so she doesn't code and she doesn't really know many of my Ruby friends, but she remembered Jim because he just, he was so nice to her. You know, he didn't, he, he completely, he put her at ease and, and talked about all kinds of interesting stuff outside the world of coding for a while on, on that boat. And, uh, I don't know. He was just such a nice guy to everyone and he put everyone at ease. Yep. My wife also knew Jim. Um, she did through coding when, um, uh, she was, uh, working in Ruby, she took one of his workshops at uh, a Lone Star Ruby conference. One year after Red Dirt, we um, played board games with Jim in the hallway of the lobby after the conference was over, and my wife was there for that and and uh, played games with Jim, and then we went out to eat with him a couple of times when we ran into him at conferences and stuff, and when she heard he had passed, she was just heartbroken because she really liked him too. Yeah, he, he was the epitome of style and grace. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Awesome. My, my one little gym anecdote I'll, I'll finish up 
my part here with was when RubyConf was close to San Francisco in 2009. Uh, wasn't exactly in San Francisco. It was down by the airport. Uh, but uh, there was a little event that we did uh, during uh, the lunch break of pairing with the stars where we had... Uh, it, I, I kind of disliked the the whole like star hero worship focus of the event, but it was fun to do anyway. We like a couple of us, you know, big name Rubyists paired up with quote ordinary Rubyists, and we did a little you know pair, you know dancing with the stars type competition. And Jim kicked my ass. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it was just like I thought we had it. We went through the first two rounds. My my pair and I like we we were ahead on points. Everything was great, and then the final number. You know, we did okay, my pair and I. You know, this, this was something that happened over a couple uh, lunch times throughout the conference, uh, you know, for a couple of days. And the last day, like, J- Jim got, Jim and his pair got up there and they just crushed us. And I, Jim took our code, which I thought was like, like ended up being really beautiful. And like in the midst of his, like, he only had like so many minutes, like three minutes to do his entire thing. He took a few seconds out to correct my code. <laughs> here's what i did right and here's what Josh did wrong. yeah yeah he's like very good you almost got it right but you left out the pit the bit where you always want to pass the block to the method <laughs> <laughs> it's like thanks jim and, and so, so he completely crushed us but he made me like feel so good watching him do it that I I couldn't feel bad about it at all. <laughs> so 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 even though we even though we were ahead on points, you know his pair won by acclaim. So and I didn't feel bad about that at all. That's awesome. Yeah, he's is such a, a, an inspiration to me when it comes to how to deal with criticism and with opinions. I mean, he clearly had lots of opinions. A lot of his talks are about his opinions. But he had he always addressed them in such a very constructive way. And I reflect on that every time I think about him. Yeah, I agree. Well, sounds like we're at a point to wrap up. Yeah, I think maybe something good to say, uh, like in closing, is we've kind of touched on this in this episode, but Jim left this amazing legacy of code and talks and stories and things and it's really inspiring and there's amazing stuff the code is very readable i've just spent like the last few days reading bits of gem code here and there and i can't believe how many cool things i found I, I have even more that we didn't have time to talk about and i think you could spend a little time just spelunking in gym land, go, go pick a talk that sounds interesting to you off of that list of 34 and listen, go look through a couple of these libraries and glance at, at the code we've been mentioning and talking about. I'm pretty sure you'll consider that time well spent. It's hard not to get into this and not gain things from it. It's truly an amazing legacy and, and, uh, what a great way to, to honor the guy by, by learning from it. That's exactly why he did all this. So it's worth it. Very much agree. Yeah. I got nothing to add to that. That's great. Quick reminder. We are reading object design for our book club book. It is by Rebecca Werfs Brock and Alan McKean. And we're going to have Rebecca on the show. So, uh, go pick it up. We'll put a link in the show notes. And, uh, thanks for listening.
by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. This episode is sponsored by CodeShip. CodeShip is a hosted continuous deployment service that just works. Set up continuous integration in a few steps and automatically deploy when all your tests have passed. CodeShip has great support for a lot of languages and test frameworks. It integrates with GitHub and Bitbucket and lets you deploy cloud services like Heroku, AWS, Nojitsu, Google App Engine, or your own servers. Start with their free plan. Setup only takes three minutes. CodeShip, continuous deployment made simple. A special thanks to HoneyBadger.io for sponsoring Ruby Rogues. They do exception monitoring, uptime, and performance metrics and are an active part of the Ruby community. Would you like to join a conversation with the Rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.